This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I was thinking about it. It's been a while since we've done a real disastrous expedition podcast, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's been since the Dr. Livingston episode, the last time I had to do a fake voice. Yeah. (laughs) And even then, there's a little success in that mission. It seems like you never expect when you're packing your bags with truffles and cases of champagne that the trip is going to end with your strange all-terrain vehicle not being so all-terrain after all and stuck in the mud or that maybe sharks will eat your ponies or that in Stanley's case, crocodiles will eat your donkey. Yeah, that's never any fun. But listener Rich promised us highs and lows similar to that when he wrote in to suggest the Darien expedition for our next podcast. And it involves the 17th century Scottish attempt to settle Panama. And it's always been somewhere in, I think, our mental topic list. Yeah, definitely. I remember reading about it briefly in Matthew Parker's book, Panama Fever, a couple years back now while I was researching an article on the Panama Canal. So yeah, it's, it's always been sort of hanging out in our in our mental list for sure. Yeah, but Rich told us that while he couldn't guarantee an exhumation, the Darien expedition was certainly in the best tradition of expedition podcasts, a shockingly unrealistic idea of what to expect unpreparedness, severe deprivation, and also strange items brought along for the trip, which we'll go over. So yeah, Rich, I think you really sold it there with that explanation. But the Darien story is also a little different from some of the other expedition podcasts we've done in the past, which are often just pure adventures, adventure for the sake of adventure. This was more than just a personal folly, and it was definitely more than a disaster for just the people who were involved. It was a national fiasco, and it really played no small part in 18th century nation building. So it had far-reaching consequences for sure. So before we get too involved into what happened in Panama, we're going to start with the primary player involved, which was Scotland. 
Yeah, the country was experiencing troubled times in the late 1600s. There had been war, famine, and poor international trade due to England's constant continental wars. And a lot of people around this time were getting out. They were immigrating to the English colonies. But the ones who stayed behind needed some hope. And with some peace with the French and the English finally on hand and continental trade opening up again, it seemed like global commerce was the way to go, specifically bringing valuable Eastern commodities to the West. Yeah, so enter William Patterson. He was a young Scotsman, and he had spent his youth traveling. Matthew Parker, the author I just mentioned, described him as part missionary, part buccaneer, if that gives you a good idea of what kind of man he was in his youth, at least. But he had made his fortune in business in England, and in 1694, he had even helped start the Bank of England. But his main operation at this point was promoting speculative money-making schemes, which sounds kind of promising and ominous, considering we've already told you this podcast doesn't exactly work out for the people involved. Right. So here's how it starts. Well, Patterson's in London. He meets a sailor named Lionel Wafer, who tells him about a place called Darien on the eastern side of the Panamanian Isthmus. And it's supposedly this wonderful paradise. Naturally. Yeah. And the true beauty of the place, though, as we'll find out, was not its supposed bounty, but in its geography. Yeah. So Europeans had been in enchanted by the narrow strip of land between North and South America for a really long time, since they first saw it in the 1500s, 1501, in fact. So dreams of some kind of overland route, or maybe even a canal eventually, started in 1513 when Vasco Nunez de Balboa made his march to the Pacific and realized that he could see both the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean from a peak at Darien. And Patterson was thinking along similar lines here. He was thinking if you established ports on both sides of the isthmus, then hauled goods overland, you'd be in control of this global trade artery. If Scotland controlled Darien and established a colony there, it would consequently soon become fabulously wealthy from all of the trade levies going through because ships loaded down with Pacific goods would no longer have to go all the way around South America, around the Cape Horn, which was not only a long and expensive trip, but a dangerous one, too. You might just wreck your entire ship and lose everything. So instead, he figured, people would be willing to pay a little bit to this Scottish territory and take the shortcut through Darien. Yeah, but Patterson actually took plans a step further and envisioned not just a highway-like outpost with financial ties to Scotland, but a melting pot of all nationalities, races, and religions. He said that whoever controlled the Cosmopolitan Center would possess, quote, the gates to the Pacific and the keys to the universe. Do but open these doors and trade will increase and money will beget money. All right, but... The problem was, while Patterson had been to the Caribbean and had traveled there, he had never actually been to Panama. And the reports coming back on the terrain and the climate especially weren't exactly accurate. He was hearing about these nice low valleys, the kind of, the kind of terrain it's easy to imagine just cutting a road through and and hauling goods. The Darien region in reality is 
really hot. It's humid. There's dense rainforest. There are mangrove swamps, and there are low mountains. So it's difficult in pretty much every way you you can think of. Yeah, and it is a paradise, but it's a paradise of flora and fauna. You know, jaguars, ocelots. My favorite animal. Your favorite animal showing up in Darien. And there are also giant anteaters, harpy eagles, American crocs, things like that. But it's not a paradise in the way Lionel Wafer described it. In fact, the Darien region is such a tough place to live, it's actually believed to have been always this sparsely populated, and it still is today. So it doesn't exactly sound like the best spot to send a few shipfuls of Scottish immigrants, does it? Unprepared Scottish immigrants. No, it doesn't. Although the Scottish Parliament thinks that it sounds like a great idea, even though it seems too good to be true to set up this colony, the Parliament backed the scheme and allowed the creation of the Company of Scotland Trading to Africa and the Indies which is quite a mouthful, in June 1695. Now, though, they had to raise the money to build the ships, stock them, and and just get the materials they'd need to start trade and and start up a colony. Unsurprisingly, though, the English and the English-backed East India Company weren't really thrilled by the idea of this new potential rival in global trade. They weren't thrilled at all. In fact, English investors who had put money into the new Scottish company early on were forced to withdraw it. Uh, and the ambassador, the English ambassador in Holland even threatened to embargo merchants that traded with this new company. So the English were really throwing up any roadblocks they could to try to put the lockdown on this thing before it even got started. Yeah, and you'd think that would be a bad omen, but it's funny, those that English opposition actually seemed to only make the Scots more gung-ho about this entire plan. Definitely. So subscriptions soared, and in six months' time, the rich and the poor alike raised 400,000 pounds together, half of the country's capital. Yeah, but even then, even with all of this support and enthusiasm, there was an early glitch. A company member named James Smith ran off with 17,000 pounds earmarked for boat construction. And Patterson, of course, being in charge of this new company, was sort of under suspicion, but nobody could prove that he was involved. He even paid back 9,000 pounds of his own money. But he was still kind of tainted by the scandal, and he lost his position at the head of the company and was forced to travel just as a simple settler, one of the masses. And that kind of set up a leadership issue that was going to prove to be a major problem down the road. Yeah, so there are troubles right off the bat, but still plans marched on. There were five ships built in Hamburg and Amsterdam. Their names were the Caledonia, the St. Andrew, the Unicorn, the Dolphin, and the Endeavor. And they were stocked with medical supplies for 1,500 people for two years. It included food like biscuits, beef, pork, prunes. Um, They brought along tobacco, pipes, cloth, and tons of brandy and rum. But they also brought along some pretty unnecessary items too, didn't they, Sarah? Yeah, wigs. I mean, you would not think you'd need wigs for moving to Panama, but they were expecting there was some stylish living in their futures. And they also brought items to trade with the local Indians, like heavy Scottish cloth and mirrors and combs, because they heard that 
the the native people had really long hair and and were kind of vain about it. And they even brought 1,500 English language Bibles, thinking they would be able to sell those. So. Again, kind of a bad sign here if, if this is your packing list. But on July 12, 1698, they left Scotland with all of those 1,200 colonists on board. And people were so desperate to go to join this mission, which which was full and there weren't any spaces left, that stowaways had hidden themselves on the ships and had to be expelled before they sailed off. It was a real big to-do. The whole city turned out. Uh, it was a celebration for the country. People thought this was going to was going to make Scotland. Which is so wild because they did not even know where they were going. No, at the time they didn't. With the exception of men like Patterson, most of the people on board didn't know the destination. Like, they did not know where they were sailing to. It was contained, the destination was contained in a sealed packet, and it wasn't opened until Madeira, and at that point it was revealed to be a place called Golden Island on the coast of Darien. So, even then, they have a name, but they're still not exactly exactly sure what to expect there. It's a three-month voyage, too. Yeah, and it's kind of treacherous. I mean, 43 die en route. Which was supposed to be fairly typical, unfortunately, for a, a journey at this time. That's true. And they landed November 3rd at a spot they named Caledonia Bay. And it was fortunately, but deceivingly, the beginning of a short dry season when they got there. So things seemed okay at first. Patterson wrote, quote, Our situation is in one of the best and most defensible harbors, perhaps in the world. The country is healthful, exceedingly fertile, and the weather is temperate. So positive attitude right at the get-go. And the locals were nice, too. The Kuna and the Choco were friendly and helpful, and they liked to fly the cross of St. Andrew on their canoes, too. So they seemed on board with what was going on. Yeah, so they were getting along, but things started to go bad pretty quickly. And their first choice of a building site wasn't at all suitable. Patterson called it, quote, a mere morass, neither fit to be fortified nor planted, nor indeed for men to lie upon. We were clearing and making huts upon this improper place near two months in which time experience, the schoolmaster of fools, convinced our masters that the place now called Fort St. Andrews was a more proper place for us. So at the fort site, they started to build New Edinburgh. And by that point, though, there was major trouble because rainy season had started. And of course, rain brought bugs and disease. And by March of that year, 200 colonists were dead. And the death rate eventually increased to about 10 people per day. So they're dropping like flies in this weather and heat and bad climate. Yeah, and to add to that situation, food was scarce. Despite the large supplies they had bought with them, it was rotting because of the damp, and there just wasn't enough of it. There was no strong leadership and lots of infighting, and basically they just lost hope at that point. They lost their spirit. Yeah, there's an account from a young gentleman who was on the trip named Roger Oswald, and he described his experience at Darien living off of less than a pound of moldy flour a week. And here's here's what he had to say. It pretty much sums up all of the points we just made. When boiled with a little water without anything else, big maggots and worms must be skimmed off the top. Yet for all this short allowance, every man, let him never be so weak, daily turned out to work by daylight, whether with the hatchet or wheelbarrow, pickaxe, shovel, forehammer, or any other instrument the case required, and so continued until 12 o'clock, and at 2 again, and stayed till night, sometimes working all day up to the headbands of the breeches in water at the trenches. 
shoulders. My shoulders have been so war with carrying burdens that the skin has come off them and grew full of boils. If a man were sick and obliged to stay within, no victuals for him that day. Our counselors all the while lying at their ease, sometimes divided into factions, and being swayed by particular interest, ruined the public. Our bodies pined away and grew so macerated with such allowance that we were like so many skeletons. So it wasn't quite the gates to the Pacific and possessing the keys to the universe that Patterson thought it would be. And even basic non-overland trading was not going according to plan, so they weren't able to make money either. Um, For example, and surprisingly, the Indians did not want to buy lots of Scottish cloth or combs. And the English colonies in the West Indies and in North America were actually forbidden by London to communicate with the Scots, let alone trade with them. So they were frozen out. Yeah, and only a few traders in Boston and New York were willing to trade food for cash, and obviously if you're trading for cash, that's not a long-term solution. So we have to ask, why did the English just come down so hard on trade for this new company? The East India thing was obviously still a sore point, but the main issue here was maintaining diplomatic relations with Spain, because yes, in addition to overlooking the climate of Darien and its mosquitoes and the difficult terrain, the expedition's promoters had just completely ignored the fact that Spain already laid claim to Panama, powerful Spain with all of its armies and ships. Whoops. Yeah, big mistake. So by June, survivors had sort of packed it in. Patterson's wife and son had both died, and the party sailed to Jamaica and then to New York, leaving ships and dead behind along the way. Some of the ships crashed. I think some were sold off, and really the only one that made it back home to Scotland was the Caledonia. Yeah, and survivors in New York were described as looking, quote, rather like skeletons than men being starved. But before word could get back to Scotland that the settlers had abandoned the colony, the company had actually sent more people out there. So several more ships were sent out to Darien, and they met with numerous disasters along the way. But when the new settlers finally arrived in November 1699, what they found there, obviously, was an abandoned colony. And again, they had a terrible time. There was no leadership Um, no decent goods to trade. And they wondered, you know, again, they came to this question, should we stay or should we go back home? Yeah, and there was a man named James Byers who took control and had folks vote to keep 500 men at Darien and send the rest to Jamaica and and on to home. And he ran into some trouble. There was a mutiny. One man was executed. And finally, this infighting was put to a stop by the Spanish. The Spanish got fed up with the situation and attacked. And Buyers abandoned the settlement. Others stayed behind to fight. And uh, obviously, the poor, starving colonists were no match for the Spanish. The Spanish soon blockaded the port and forced the colonists to surrender March 18, 1700. But fortunately for the, the Scots, the Spanish commander was pretty generous. He gave them two weeks to pack up supplies and and scavenge for food, get what they could together before they got out. Uh, But the settlers who returned home, and there weren't many of them, since many had obviously died, were considered pariahs, really, by their own countrymen. The company had lost the life savings of much of the country, and, and people held them responsible for that. Yeah, according to Scottish Parliament, it was about the cost of one quarter of Scotland's liquid assets that they lost. So it was a pretty big deal. And Scotland was so deeply 
deeply in debt at that point that they could no longer they no longer have the resources to compete with England. Instead, the country dissolved its parliament and in 1707 joined the Act of Union with England. And as part of that act, England paid Scotland's debts. They paid 398,000 pounds, and that was to be managed by the eventual Royal Bank of Scotland, which somewhat surprisingly, Patterson actually helped organize. I know. I guess he was good at, at starting banks, but I'm surprised that he was allowed to manage this amount of money again. But still, many Scots held the English responsible because of all those early roadblocks and the freezing out and all of that. According to BBC History, some historians consider this strong dislike to have been a factor in the 18th century Jacobite rebellions. But there's still a few traces of the Scottish settlement that are left today. There's a spot of land called Scots Point, and small traces of the settlement can be found at Caledonia Bay. Uh, They were actually first discovered in 1979. I guess they had been sort of reclaimed by by nature, but uh, a few little points left here and there. Yeah, and it's still really remote. Only a few airstrips are there to reach settlements in Darien and a true measure of this difficult terrain. The Pan-American Highway that runs from Alaska to Argentina only has one gap at Darien. Yeah, so it makes it impossible to drive a car between the two continents. Uh, so pretty, pretty wild story with Scotland and, and their investment scheme here. And it reminded me a lot of what comes about 200 years later when the French tried to build a canal at Panama. Again, there was sort of a subscription, public subscription, a lot of national pride and total disaster. In that case, tens of thousands of people died trying to build the canal in the climate, dying of yellow fever and malaria. And, um, just kind of an interesting cyclical story almost. Yeah. A good adventure, but an ill-fated one. And a bad packing list. A good story, I should say. Maybe a bad packing list, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a, um, a successful trip starts with a successfully packed suitcase. That's a mantra you could live by, I suppose. <laughs> so I think that brings us to listener mail. So this email is from Hannah, and she wrote about our Unforgettable Fires episode. Um, She wanted to share some trivia with us about the Great Fire in San Francisco, and here's what she had to say. It turns out that although we are firmly in earthquake country here in the Bay Area, in 1906, it was far more common for people to have fire insurance than earthquake insurance. After the disaster, this led many to report earthquake damage as fire damage so that they could get reimbursed. Today, we assume that most of the damage was caused by the fire, since the records seem to say so. But it is almost impossible to tell for sure, since so many claims were falsified by people trying to recover their lives in the chaos following the quake. So I thought that was a really interesting point and kind of a good reminder of how even good records, which there are lots of good records on the San Francisco fire, aren't 100% reliable. Yeah, thanks for sending that one in. And um, I guess if you want to email us any more failed expedition podcast ideas or just disastrous ones, it doesn't have to be a total failure. And it doesn't have to be an exhumation. I feel like everybody who writes in apologizes for not having an idea that's an exhumation. I know. we, We promise we're interested in other things besides buried bodies. So if you have any good suggestions, please email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. 
And if you want to learn a little bit more about the area of the world we just talked about, we have an article called How the Panama Canal Works on our website. You can look it up by searching for Panama Canal on our homepage, which is at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.